Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we talk about how men can find and embrace the healthiest, best, loving version of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corcoran. I started this show one year ago under the premise that it would provide men the content that they need to work through their difficulties, their flaws, and their failings to find the best version of themselves. We have talked about how men can love women and men platonically and romantically. We have talked about how to be an activist and how to remain healthy in your activism. We have talked about Me Too. We have heard from compelling people such as, the, such as the great Natalie Burke and overcoming racism's Matthew Kincaid. We have heard from award-winning authors such as C. Erskine Brown and Professor Cheryl Cashin. We have been graced with wisdom from national celebrities such as America's psychologist Dr. Jeff Gardier and even our own celebrity Dr. Tammy Wilborn. However, Although I set out to help men, this has been a selfish endeavor, a chance for me to work through my own stuff. Over the last year, a number of people have walked out of my life, one of my closest friends and my two greatest loves. It would be in those moments of loss that I would find my revolution, becoming honorable with my word and my actions. It's funny, I often thought I was a good man. You know, it's kind of like you think that you're eating healthy, but you're really not. <laughs> I wasn't a good man. But this show, my guests, and the conversations I have with men every day help me to walk differently, to see the man that I used to be and embrace the man that I am and the man that I want to be. I am thankful for this journey. I am thankful for everyone that walks on this journey with me. I'm joined right now by my producer and great friend and ally, accomplice to all the good and bad, <laughs> the, the Bayou Lois Lane, Rachel Graham, and my man behind the wheels of steel, Predator himself, <laughs> <laughs> Jazz, the... Like, Oh, jazz, just jazz. Jazz, yeah. <laughs> Usually I say his full government name. Yeah, don't say his government name because no. the government might be coming to get him now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so I'm I'm sitting here and we have had to wait two weeks to actually do this show. Right. right. And, you know, through the ice storm and then through uh, guests not having the ability or our schedules not matching, mm -hmm. we haven't had a chance to do this anniversary show. And it means so much to me to say that we've been doing this for one year. I know that's not a lot cuz no, you you've been on the, you've been on the radio for a little while now. No, not that much longer. So Real Talk with Rachel launched the same week as uh What's Your Revolution launched. Right. Um and then I had been on with uh the vaunted Grayland Banks. Oh yeah, yeah, we miss Grayland. Uh, we miss him, but he listens. Don't don't think he's not far <laughs> away. Uh but I had been on with Grayland uh, Gray Lynn for mm, probably about uh, four months before that. Right. 
And so I was new to this too. Yeah. I was new to this too. And it's interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. how the show has grown. I, I was listening to some of the shows, and we were hoping to have our first guest, Brother Oliver Thomas, yes, yes. Uh, on the show. Hopefully, he will be able to join us uh, soon. But I was listening, just listening to the growth of the show. I remember asking him the pivotal and proverbial question that we ask all our guests what's your revolution? And him talking really eloquently about his work as a man. You know, and what he goes through, working through, pushing himself to be a better father, to be a better community member, mm-hmm. uh, to be the best husband to his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, and and those types of things. And we've been able to talk, we've been able to talk to a lot of people, a lot of people about some critical aspects of how to be revolutionary in your life, how to mm-hmm. be revolutionary in your communities, how to be a revolution, and. You know, it, it's often, it is it, it is often in that revolution that we find the best versions of ourselves. And as I said, you know, we've had Tammy Wilborn, Dr. Tammy Wilborn on a couple of times. And Rachel, you don't know this, but the Jay-Z episode that we did with you and Dr. Wilborn is actually the most highest and most listened show that we have on our SoundCloud. So if you want to check out that show, wow. go to, go to SoundCloud.com. H-A-R-L-E-S-O-R-P-R-E-W, and you will be able to hear uh, Dr. Wilborn and the Bayou Lewis Lane talk about Jay-Z's 444 from the female perspective. And it's Mm -hmm. quite interesting to hear that because we had had the week prior Mm -hmm. the male perspective. Right, right. You know, and it's interesting because it's still very relevant. Especially post-Grammys. Post-Grammys. Because as someone explained... You know, there were no awards for 444, uh, four, 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 and the same thing happened to Lemonade. And so the question uh, one asks is, is the world just not ready to really deal with meaty stuff like that in music? Um, and it was not recognized by the Grammys, but I think it did a lot to ignite conversations uh, between men and women and men and men. Mm-hmm around some of the things that Jay-Z had to share. And to think about, and Jay-Z being, you know, we, we being in the same generation, he's only a couple years older than me, maybe just one or two. He's 48. Remember, we're the same age, my friend. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just <laughs> like, no, I'm talking about Jay-Z. Oh, yeah, he's 47. Right. He'll so, be 48 uh, yeah, this year. Right, and so I'll be 47, but <laughs> the failings. Right. And it's funny, I, I wonder in these late 40s as we are in our relationships and we have been socialized to be a certain way, and we've talked about that. We've talked about the man code on the show. Mm-hmm. We've talked about our interactions with uh, men and women in relationships. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, in our mid-40s, do we come to that period of time where we are really looking introspectively? Or is it that you just have to get caught and then all yeah. this, <laughs> you know, you have to get caught and then you're there in your failings, in your time of being most vulnerable for a man mm-hmm. because the highlight, at least for me, I'm not going to say that. And that's one of the facilitator flaws that we have sometimes is that we'll say we instead of saying I. Right. Right. And so I socialized, you know, to, to be a womanizer. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the in those moments when you're now. When that is put out in front of you and you're caught, mm-hmm. right, is that the only time that you're actually going to sit in that and say, you know what, I need to change my life? Right. You know, and so very interesting now that, you know, as we talked, Jay-Z really puts it into perspective but has the cachet and has the platform to put what's going on 
with men who have been caught cheating mm -hmm. and then the, subs the subsequent vulnerability that comes with that out in the media. Right. And it's interesting that you say that, Rachel, that nominated eight times mm -hmm. and passed over eight times mm -hmm. with an album that really speaks to black masculinity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the failings actually and redemption that goes along with it. And so that's the interesting piece that, as you just said, and yeah. I wonder why are those meaty topics about men of color and their stories of redemption not worthy of accolades and award? Um, because we, and please don't come from my neck when I say this, because we're more comfortable with Bruno Mars um, from a musical perspective, that we're more comfortable with feeling good and being happy and mm. dancing around. And we are good with black music when it does not deal with real topics. Now, the exception to some extent was uh, Kendrick Lamar the year that he won uh, for the Butterfly album or whatever that was called, uh, How to Pimp Your Butterfly. How to, <laughs> How to Pimp a Butterfly, I think that's what it was called. And so that was the exception, but I think that kind of way went over everybody's head. And also when you look at the other things that are that were available um, in, the list, in, in the listening sphere, if you will, um, it, it all kind of pointed to, okay, let's do Kendrick. But when you've got an offering like Bruno Mars, where, and he says his music is, I just want people to feel good and, and dance again. Oh, and, the, and, that's, and that's what we do. And that's what we do. Um, so, yeah. The, and that is, that, is, that is what we do. We feel good. And we have accepted because Bruno is kind of the mix, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We love him. But he, he is, and correct me if I'm wrong in your feelings, he's not Michael. No. No. But he makes you get up and dance and feel the way somewhat similar that Michael did. I will say this. He is the Michael and the Prince without the controversy. Mm. He is. Yeah. So he's easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but when I say that, I mean, he's the talent. Um, he is the entertainment. But you're not wondering about, okay, was Bruno messing around with the little boys? Right, right. Or, you know, like with Prince, what is Prince? What is Prince? What is Prince doing? Prince uh, was doing his thing. And and everybody else's thing, too. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, with his little tail parts right? out and, and, and the, all the that. And the stiletto boots, high heel boots. Yeah. And I wrote a piece uh, that was published on the Goodman Project about – how particularly in the 80s when you have the contradiction of black masculinity with hip-hop, right, mm -hmm. and, Prince, and Prince's escalation, <laughs> yeah. his revolution during that, during that time mm -hmm. was a contradiction to what was going on with rap. But you still were like, you know what? I'm going to get down with Prince, right? right? I want to know when doves cry. It was funny because um, one of the things that was said post po posthumously about Prince was that Prince is the only man that could steal your woman wearing her heels and her, <laughs> her mascara boot. and eyeshadow. And, um, and maybe her drawers. <laughs> well, right, 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 right. right. And so you know. um, it, it was a, a, an interesting uh, thing there that, you know, um, he was androgynous, but heavily, heavily, heavily uh, – uh, masculine to some extent right play ball and we'll play look play ball in his heels uh, so i'm just gonna let you know that i'm getting pictures from oliver he's stuck in traffic oh. i'm trying to get him to call in um, yeah tell him to call yeah, in. yeah yeah i told him to, i asked him if he could call in and be a part of the conversation right because we, we he has sent me pictures of the backup that he is stuck in it's no way in the world he's going no him. he's not gonna make it <laughs> so we're gonna try to get him on the oliver, phone if you, oliver if you're listening please call in you know your voice is needed here bro you know, you were the starting point of this Aww. show. And as I said, uh, 
last year, the success of a show is based on your first guest. Yes. And he toured. I was listening to yes. his episode last night, and the brother was just dropping dimes. You know, and particularly if you if you go back and listen to that episode, that mm -hmm. original, that inaugural episode of mm -hmm. the What's a Revolution show, mm -hmm. he talks about his relationship with his father. Yeah. And that is always critical to us as we develop as young black men, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. we talk about these stories of a father not being there, you know, and what that does to the development of a young man. I am fortunate. I am very, very fortunate. My father will be 89 in two weeks. Wow. Uh, the Lord hopefully will bless him to be able to see that. Mm -hmm. And so I often wonder, because we hear these stories about men who grew up who were in prison, men who grew up without a father, men who grew up with all this. And that's the story that people seem to tend to gravitate to. You made it in spite of, right? Mm -hmm. My story isn't that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. My story is that I made it because of. Right. You know, I made it because of Charles Corpru and Bertha Corpru saying that I'm going to make sure that my son sees, all right? I'm going to make sure that my son sees the world. I'm going to give him the means uh, as much as I can. My mother would give me her last dollar, mm -hmm. right, and would say, you know what? I'm going to send you to school so to make sure that you can eat, but I'm, I don't have a dollar when I'm gone, right? Yeah. And I never really thought about that as a child mm -hmm. that my mother gave because, you know, in that mind, that yeah, that's not your last dollar, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does not even cross your, your right. It doesn't your even cross heart. your mind. But I was able to eat that. I was able to eat that day, right. and we have to understand that. So, so I was able to be successful. I am successful. Still, am successful because of the sacrifices and willingness of my parents and my father, right, and on this manly show to say I'm going to make sure that my son, right, I'm going to show I'm going to show him what it means to be a man. I'm going to show him look. I, I, again, I have to go out, and I'm trying to brag. I got 800 credit score, right? You know why I have an 800? EMI. You know, <laughs> hey, I'm sorry, but I'm going to no, I'm 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 tell you why I have an 800 credit score. You said I have a really high. You didn't have to give us numbers. But you know what? I was here, credit here, score here, shaming. <laughs> I'm not credit score shaming anybody. <laughs> all right, this is why I have an 800 credit score. Because Charles said, if you borrow a dollar from me, you gonna pay me that dollar back. Right. You know what I'm saying? And you, you're going to pay me that dollar back. And every time I'm like, man, I don't want to pay you this dollar back. So let's let's let, let's be fair, though. Let, let's be very, very fair that um, there are those who may not have 800 credit scores who grew up with the same thing. You were fortunate to have that plus your other environmental things. To make sure that you know you have an 800 credit score. Yeah, but that, it, it, <laughs> but it was the philosophy around yeah. it. Pay, you know, if you can't, right? If you, if you can't pay me that, that dollar back, don't ask me for that dollar. Exactly. <sighs> Phil, what's up, man? Phil, hello. Can can you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Phil, is this Phil yeah. Eccles? Is this Phil Eccles? Yes, it is, man. The, the one and only. The one and only Phil Eccles, the yeah. uh, the executive producer of Become Better Daily. Is this you? You calling my show today? Yeah, man. I I just wanted to chime in. Um, I don't have long, but hello, everyone. How, how are you all? We're doing all right. We're doing well. We actually have proof now that Charles does have friends. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know this guy. I, I, don't know, I don't know this guy. How much did he pay you? <laughs> Full disclosure, this is one of and my I, best friends in life. This is the Phil Eccles uh, of Become Better. Uh, does a wonderful job empowering people to just do, as just said, to become better. Make sure you check out his daily vlog, Become Better Daily. Phil, what's up with you, bro? Uh, good, man. Just, um... Taking a break from the daily grind to chime in, man. You know, I always catch a show when I can. 
And just uh, as you all celebrate your one year, just kind of wanted to share a few thoughts, man, and my um, my appreciation for the work that you all are doing. I'm, I'm proud you, of man. you. The show is an inspiration. You've covered some amazing topics, man, that I appreciate. Some coaching. You talked about being better, better fathers and mentors, and those topics have really resonated with me. Like a lot of things you all are talking about today, even um, like me having my father in my life and and good old um, Mega Man that he is. <laughs> Which, which I which I had to choose in my own path of, of becoming a brother of Kappa Alpha Psi, but oh, we wow. I, I didn't call the I didn't call <laughs> to argue with you today. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, I, I I don't have long. I just wanted to take a break. I'm here on the uh, east East Coast time in North Carolina. I got you, man. Yeah, man. I catch your show when I can. And just really appreciate the work you're doing. It needs to be done. Thank you, it's brother. necessary. And um, just stay encouraged and continue to inspire everyone to be better and be their, the best versions of themselves, man. man. Thank you for everything. No, thank you, Phil. And look, you inspire me every day, man, especially with this new blog. I love it, man. I love what you're doing. And, and that's what you have. I tell my, the students that I, um, I speak to, surround yourself with revolutionary people. And you are a revolution, brother. That's why I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey man, tell yeah. Team so, Eccles and uh, give uh, Prince Julian a hug for me, bro. <laughs> I will. Yeah, have a great great rest of the show, great weekend. Um, I'll continue to chime in. All right, brother. Take care. Thank you. Take Thank care. you. All right. Bye. Brother C. Erskine Brown, what's happening with you? <laughs> That's not what that says. <laughs> when, when I saw Charlie Brown, I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> brother Brown, are you with us? What's good? <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm good, man. I uh, I'm on the phone with you again. Yeah, man. We happy, man. I, I have to say again, your show with us last year, one of the highest rated, most listened to shows, man. Glory to God. Yeah, it is. Tell us about how the book's doing, brother. How is a cry among men? The book is doing well. Um, obviously, as an author, you wanted to do even better. Right. But right. It, it, it's doing well. I uh, I'm getting it in front of. Some of the rights folks. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have a, you know, I, it's weird. I get I get calls out of the blue. I get Facebook messages out of the blue uh, from people who read the book and they're they're so floored by it. And as a matter of fact, I just got a, a, a an email or or a Facebook message from somebody the other day that I didn't even know and asked me if I was willing to come to Maryland and do a book discussion in April. Mm. So, so I said absolutely. So um, that's just what's going on. Those kinds of things that are happening. The book again uh, is doing well. I am actually in the process of writing the next book, the follow-up. I don't want to call it a sequel, but the follow-up. And the reason I'm doing it is because everybody pretty much was getting on my nerves because I wasn't planning on doing it. But I uh, I said okay, since that's what you guys want. Um, that's what I'll do. And, and, you know, as you know, the theme of the first book was race, racism, class, and, and how uh, one act of racism can pretty much destroy a man or nearly destroy a man in his family. Um, so the follow-up to that, I, I take on the subject of temptation. Mm, interesting. And, and, and the subject of how, how does a man... We'll say a man in this case. How does a man handle 
his family or his situation when he's being tempted, number one, and at the same time when he's found something out about his wife that he never knew. Interesting, interesting. Let me tell you, brother, I read, <laughs> I, I read, I read the book um, as I was coming back from as I was coming back from Europe. And, man, <laughs> because I had read maybe a third of the book when we spoke last year, and right. coming, coming back from Europe, I, I couldn't put it down. Right. <laughs> I, could not, I could not put it down. And it's interesting because now I'm thinking about temptation. I know where that temptation might come from. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, know, you know what page I'm on. I know, exactly. <laughs> I know, exactly. As the phone rings, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at the, end, at the end of the book. And so it's a well-written book. Uh, for those of you who have not read A Cry Among Men, please go and buy the book. Uh, tell it, you know, read it in your book club. Men, go get this book. Because what this book really is, is it, it is a metaphor to what's being done to black men across the country, particularly those who have been successful, right? Right, correct. And it's, so it's really, I mean, it's interesting. We're not giving anything away. The book is phenomenal and well-written, but make sure you have your dictionary out with you. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, make sure you have your dictionary out with you when you read this book because let me tell you, um, my words with with friends, uh, you know, cachet went up a thousand by reading this book, brother. So I am very happy for you, and I'm appreciative, you know, of all the things that you do and your support of the show. Uh, Likewise. Anything that we can do to help you promote your book, we will do. Again, a crime, cry among men, acclaimed author, C. Erskine Brown, brother. I appreciate you so much. Much love to you, brother. All Keep right. doing what you're doing. Thank you, man. Take care. All Take care. Yes, sir. Bye bye. Thank you. So it's, it's just, you know, it is interesting. You know, we've heard, you know, from so many voices. I think about Natalie Burke's Compelling, What Compels You. Mm-hmm. You know, again, one of our highest listened to shows. And she talked about really uh, around race and equity mm-hmm. and how we need to be compelled to then reevaluate our values. Right, right. You know, and, and that's something you, you, you think about that. What do you, what do you value, Rachel? Mm. <laughs> Peace and sanity. Peace and sanity. Why do you value that? Because um, that's kind of what makes everything move, if you will. Right. So if there's the distraction around, if you're not living in a peaceful surrounding. So people give me a hard time. Um, This is kind of appropriate to have this conversation now, considering what um, the last few weeks have been like. Uh, But people have a tendency to give me a hard time because I'm very particular about my living situation, like what it looks like. I just need it to be a certain way. My my home aesthetic, and I'm not talking about like balling out, but I'm just really particular about where I live and how I live, right? Um, and that's because that is where home base is. That's where my my wellspring of you know just peacefulness comes from. When that's not in order, mm-hmm, exactly. uh, everything else is just kind of kind of whack. It is kind of whack. Yeah, <laughs> and it, I, it yeah. is. I, I I've been there, and, yeah. and luckily. F- you know, and I, I definitely understand having peace and serenity, san- mm-hmm. sanity. Uh, very fortunate now to have a great relationship with my neighbor. But oh, if, yeah. Yeah, but when you don't have a great relationship with your neighbor, right, and when you live such in such close quarters, it can really rob you of your sanity. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm one of those people where they're – like, I will never have a roommate again. Oh. I God. may marry – but I will never have another roommate. And in this quest to find somewhere to live, I was very particular. I was not going to have a roommate because I've had the worst roommate experiences ever. I had two roommates for uh, 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of my longest roommate, hey. hello, mother. 
Mother? Yes. Hello. How, how are you, Mother? I'm very well. How are you today, son? I'm doing well. You sound so beautiful. It, you sound oh. so beautiful, Bertha. <laughs> oh, great. So you all have a celebration today? We we have a celebration today. When Mother called in to say how proud she is of her son and hope you're having a great and blessed celebration. Yeah, we are. We are. Uh, I just want to say thank you, Mother, for all that you do, um, for being the most tremendous uh, support that I've had throughout this throughout this life, throughout this endeavor, you're always praying for me. And yes. I know that this life would not be the same if I, if I did not have a praying mother. Yes. So I'm very blessed and grateful. And I know that you, you are, the, you are the, the cog in the system that makes our system, our family, go. And I know that my father, as we talk, as we talk about masculinity, we talk about manhood, that without you, our, uh, our family does not go. And, and I know that he is appreciative, and I am most appreciative of everything you do to, to make us better versions of ourselves. I know particularly with my father. <laughs> oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Uh, so this is the blessing that the Lord gave me to pray. And I had a mother that was the same way with to me and gave me her blessing. I had a praying mother, and it, it just left that for me to do for you and to care for you and to love you and say how proud I am of you all. You as my son. I'm proud to be your mother. Well, I am proud to be your son. Uh, yes, I do call my mother by her first name, <laughs> but that's just the relationship that we have. Bertha, Bertha Lois, as my grandmother would call her. Uh, that's right. And she would yell through the household. My, gra my wonderful grandmother, Stella Lee Halsey Bryant, uh, again, the staple uh, and the framework of who we are, blessed us for 88 years, you know, uh, Chucky. Yeah. <laughs> yes. that's how, that's how you were her heart. Uh, I love her. I love her. Uh, yes. Do we have time to put my father on the phone real quick? Yes, we do. Oh, Hold you... on. Child. Yay! Oh. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my God. Oh, Tell him he's got to hurry up, mother. He's got to hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> this is connect with Chuck on his radio station. See, this is what we had to go through. We lived in a twelve hundred square foot house, and they would yell at each this other from one one end of the house to the other. Yeah, pick up the phone. Yeah. Of course, you <laughs> know he's napping. Uh, I'm sure. My father is eighty eight years old, a little hard of hearing, very very stubborn. Oh, um, really? I wonder where. Yes, yeah, yeah very very stubborn. You got the phone, honey. He's yeah. He's just he's, he, tell him he's got twenty seconds. I, I, he says you got twenty seconds. Twenty twenty seconds. I'm gonna and he needs to be ready to answer seconds. the question. You right there by your phone. <laughs> you got twenty seconds. What you yeah, right there to the phone, It's Tom. over. It's uh, this is so, so cute. This is this is what I grew up with. This 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 is what I grew up with. This is adorable. I know, mom. Mom. Something happened. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here, Chuck. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go from this room too. Ma, ma, don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I think he picked up. Did he pick up? Dad. Did, did you pick up, Charles? Say what? Say hello. <laughs> Say hello, Dad. He didn't pick up. The he phone. did not pick up the phone. Hey, Charles, you had two phones, one in front of you and oh. one where you. There he goes. There he goes. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Oh, man. He calls you. You called me by my nickname on the phone. Now everybody heard it. Cut okay. that other phone off. How'd that be? <laughs> Dad. Dad, we got like 30 seconds. How you doing today? I'm doing good. How you doing? I was nodding a little bit. I know you were. I know you were. You're on my radio show right now, Dad. 
Huh? You're on. You're on live on my radio show, Dad. I just wanted. I just wanted to tell you how much I love you, and how much I appreciate all your support. Okay, babe. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dad. I love you, buddy. All right. Thank you. We love you, and God bless you, all of you. Thank right. you. Thank you. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. All right. There you, you heard go. That. You heard that. Thanks, Mom. Okay. As we go to break, wow. I know you all have been waiting. You all have been waiting for this. I have posted it on social media. We are, will have the revealing of our Revolutionary of the Year. Stay tuned because this man is truly the spirit of revolution here in New Orleans. Uh, I am grateful for the time that he gives the world. We'll see you on the other side. Thank you for listening to the What's Your Revolution show. at 6 a.m. have become more interesting and informative here on WVOK Radio. That's when you can tune in to The Morning Cup with Warren Bell, bringing you the latest news stories in greater depth, plus my one-on-one candid conversations with newsmakers at the local and the national level. And, of course, we'll get you ready for the day with weather and traffic updates during the hour. So join us Mondays through Fridays, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. for The Morning Cup with Warren Bell. Brought to you by Entergy and by Metairie Bank, the bank of personal service. When it comes to modern banking, people in Louisiana want a bank they can rely on for quality service and convenience. At Metairie Bank, we're proud to say that for 70 years, we've been that trusted institution because of how... We connect with you. From commercial and residential loans to mobile technology that makes banking easier, there's one local bank you can always count on. As the longest standing commercial bank headquartered in Jefferson Parish, we're 70 years strong but forever young because we connect with you. And we're pleased to offer the latest in mobile banking so you can check your balance, make a deposit, or pay a bill at any time from anywhere. From the South Shore to the North Shore, if you're looking for a local bank with a 70-year tradition that continues to evolve with modern technology, come see how we connect with you. Battery Bank. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Only AT&T gives you HBO included for no extra charge with AT&T Unlimited Plans. So we asked people what they thought about it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Did you hear that? It's the HBO sound. It is, because HBO comes with AT&T Unlimited plans. How does that make you feel? You mean I can watch HBO on my phone? Yep, or your tablet or your smart TV. So I can watch Game of Thrones and Westworld? And Insecure and Silicon Valley? And Veep and Divorce? And the deuce and curve your enthusiasm. Plus the latest movies? Virtually anywhere? On my favorite device? Even when it's not Sunday night? Yes, exactly. 
Only AT&T gives you HBO included for no extra charge with AT&T Unlimited Plans. Visit an AT&T store for details. Requires eligible wireless plan and activating HBO. Starts within two bills. May be billed and credited. After 22 gigabytes per line per month, you may experience slower speeds. Coverage and restrictions apply. See att.com slash unlimited. Democracy Now! in New Orleans. Catch WBOK's newest show, Democracy Now! every Monday through Friday from 7 to 8 p.m. It's Democracy Now! Daily global independent news hour anchored by award-winning journalists Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. Democracy Now! presents daily headlines followed by in-depth discussions from a rich diversity of people and perspectives rarely heard from mainstream media. Guests include international journalists, scholars, scientists, authors, analysts, artists, filmmakers, and ordinary people who are most affected by news events in the U.S and around the world. Tune in to Democracy Now! every Monday through Friday from 7 to 8 p.m. You're listening to WBOK New Orleans. should be revolutionary, but I think in our our contemporary climate it is. I think it always has been. And what I mean by normal, I mean that we are utterly human, that we are not subhuman, that we are not extra human, that we're not, you know, supernatural, that we're not degraded, that we are in the fullest sense of the term human beings. And I think that often gets lost in our conversations uh, specifically about black people. And so my goal, I think an overarching goal and what I write is to express that. Right. And to, to make that plain. It shouldn't be such a radical idea that we are utterly human and normal. But the longer you talk to people the more you realize that the impediment to so many of our conversations is that belief that we are different mm. than everybody else in these fundamentally human ways. Many, many years ago, a columnist that I greatly admire, Leonard Pitts, wrote a column where he talked about there was this white woman who wrote him and apparently her daughter or son was in an interracial relationship 
had a baby, a black baby, essentially. And she wrote him expressing surprise that the black baby smelled like a baby. <laughs> like, I, I, I really wasn't expecting it. It's like, well, what did you think the baby was going right, to smell like? Right. You know, so these types Emotions. of ideas that we are just fundamentally different in some ways, I think is the revolution that I am trying to to bring about. And it's really difficult that we have all of these ideas that suggest otherwise. I mean, for me, the Trayvon Martin uh, killing of, of 2012 was indicative of how people ascribe certain ideas to people related to race. And I remember having this angry call from this white man who was mad at something that I had written regarding Trayvon Martin. And we talked for probably 15 minutes or so. One of the conversations that was pro that probably stands out as, as, as time when I was actually able to reach somebody who called, because at a certain point in the conversation I said, the only point I'm making here that if the situations were reversed and the police came upon Trayvon Martin standing with a gun in his hand and there was a dead person at his feet, he would be in jail right now, right now. no questions asked. And the person said, finally, okay, I see your point. <laughs> I said, okay, thank you. I, my, my job is done here today. And the fact that we are thinking about it differently based solely on the races of the people um, in the case. Last weekend, thankfully, we had Ronald Gasser convicted of manslaughter in the killing of Joe McKnight, Jr. And I can't tell you how, and I shouldn't have to tell you because you probably felt the same way, how nervous I was. Yeah, exactly. How, how that trial was going to turn out. And I can imagine white man, white man situation, I wouldn't have been fearful of him getting off or there being an acquittal. Black man, black man in a situation, I wouldn't have been fearful of there being an acquittal. But white shooter, black man dead, black athlete dead, right. person of some size, I was really, really fearful that because of the lineup of, of, of defendant and victim that the jury was going to somehow talk itself out of right. being able to find a conviction. And again, I think it is because we ascribe different things to, to black men, to black people. Like the, the people in the Trayvon Martin conversations could not conceive of him being afraid. Right. Like, they, they, they couldn't conceive of him being afraid of somebody following him. And that's that stigma, that's that um, stereotype that the super, yeah, you know, the superhuman, but Which a, means, extraordinary, and, 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 and but the, not in the best terms. And, and the crazy thing is that these are the same people who would say that they're afraid of driving through our neighborhoods or afraid of driving through parts of New Orleans, but can't conceive of people, number one, who live in those neighborhoods being afraid right. 
of, of something, or maybe even the same things that they're afraid of, or being afraid when we're in environments that are not to our liking, you know, that, that we actually have fear. That, right. that, that is an honest human emotion. And that somebody who is walking in the dark and sees somebody trailing him <laughs> right. might actually be afraid <laughs> of, of, of this stranger. Right. And, and being black does not prevent you from being afraid in that situation. Right. It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing on it one right. way or the other. I think in our first conversation when we talked about this, the key thing that you said that resonated with me so much is that the word ordinary. Yeah, and it, it took me back when you said that. You said that just to understand that we are ordinary people, that we are not extraordinary. And I was like, wait a minute, we are. But the way that you couch that is that we develop like everyone else. We yeah. have ordinary lives. We have ordinary fears. There's nothing extraordinary about our lived experiences, and we have to understand that. Yeah, I think that what's extraordinary is the situations that we've been placed in. Exactly. I mean, we we're, we're, have been placed in incredibly difficult and hostile environments, and we've had to survive, and we've had to make our way through them, but I don't think that it makes us different in any kind of fundamental sense. And so, you know, I, I before I came here this morning, I was looking at um, an essay that Langston Hughes wrote in 1926, mm -hmm. as you may have seen, The Negro and the Racial Mountain. Right, exactly. And he starts out, and everybody believes he's talking about County Cullen, <laughs> the poet who says he doesn't want to be a black poet. And Langston interprets that to me that he wants to be a white poet, which he interprets that to me that I want to be a white person. Right. And so he goes through this whole essay about why it's important to be who you are and to embrace the culture that you're in. And he says something at the end of that essay. He says, we know that we are beautiful and ugly too. Mm. And I thought his choice to say that we are both beautiful and ugly. This is 1926. You know, he's not, everybody can't be exclusively beautiful and, and and the idea that we are beautiful without ugliness would make us something less than human right exactly <clears throat> something more than human i should say and to say the opposite that we are ugly without beauty would make us something less than human but to say that we we know that we are beautiful and ugly too is a way of i think of saying what i'm saying that we are that we are utterly human and that that's okay yeah. and that we don't we don't have to be Superman we don't have to be John Henry right you know as much as we have mm -hmm. the image of the strong black woman there's also <clears throat> this John Henry attitude that we have to you know overcome the world mm -hmm. and overcome all these impediments that are that are facing us and you know there's a lot of research out there that says that's killing us right Right. But this this exactly. John Henry mm -hmm. idea and conceit is, you know, hastening our death. Right. You you see you see that um, with the hypertension, the higher levels of hypertension within African Americans. Yeah. The the highest death rate, the lowest you know the, the lowest level of 
um, life expectancy. Yeah. You know, all of these things, the structures that we face as men of color. Yeah. You know, because we have to take on all of those things from the time that we're born. Correct. You know, and that's the very interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's what Du Bois, I think, talks about so beautifully, this, this double consciousness where you're always not only thinking for yourself, but you're thinking about how others are exactly. thinking of you. Exactly. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. You know. And that stress. And having. Constant to, stress. Having to negotiate that mm -hmm. all the time. You know, that, that came in crystal focus for me many, many years ago in New Orleans where I was waiting outside with a bunch of people for a restaurant, for a table at a restaurant, decided to walk to the ATM to get money. As I'm walking to the ATM, uh, a white woman is pulling up to the uh, ATM in her car. I'm coming like out of a dark kind of you know, the sidewalks aren't lit the way they should be lit. Like, so I'm stepping out of the darkness into the light and immediately I'm negotiating this thing. I'm not going to just walk up behind this right, exactly. car and stand at an ATM. Right. That's, even though I know I'm not a criminal, I'm not there to rob what we have to do. But I have that's to think, I have to well. think as if I am one and right. think about what she might be thinking and think about, you know, all the things, how to keep my safe myself safe against people who might think a certain thing about me. Uh, and so that kind of extra negotiation that we are always constantly having to do, I think makes the way that we move through this world different, but it doesn't make us different in and of itself. Right, right. Let's move. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. And I, I love that concept of being ordinary, but understand that that ordinary is that we still have to navigate. Yeah, we still have to navigate. So, as a black man working at the forefront of the news cycle, <laughs> right? But having the cachet to write your opinion about it. Yeah. What are the challenges that you have inwardly and outwardly as you do this great work? I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever said this publicly in an interview before. Uh, but my entree into opinion writing was as an editorial writer, which is basically the unsigned editorials of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So when you go to see the newspaper's opinion, you don't see anybody's name on it. Uh, it is just the, the opinion of this institution. And so that's how I began writing. Uh, opinions and it was the strangest sensation because I felt like for eight hours a day or so I got to be a white man. Explain. I'm like that. If you were to read an editorial in the Times Speaking Union, you will assume that it is written by a white man. It is the majority white paper. It has not the best history. <laughs> <laughs> On, on racial matters and, 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 and issues of um, inclusion and equity and diversity and all of those things. And I, I think it goes beyond just the editorials. I think that in general, if you are reading a white, a majority-owned newspaper, 
and the name of the person who's writing it does not carry with it any type of obvious ethnic identity. It's not a, you know, um, John Chang, or it's not, you know, Emilio Rodriguez, or something like that. If the name doesn't carry any obvious um, ethnic identity to it, it's my belief that most people assume that that person it's is white. white. Right. It's just this, the, the reflexive assumption we make. Um, Toni Morrison has written, and I, I, I'm probably not going to do her justice by saying this, but if you are in the United States of America and you read a sentence that says something like a man was walking down the street, you have been primed to think of that person as a white man. Exactly. You don't think of that person as a black man unless there is an obvious mm -hmm. identifier. So if you say a Cuban said such and such to me, most of us are going to imagine a white person, even though the number of black people in Cuba is right. huge. Exactly. Right? So this is how we, we come to think about things. So editorials are unsigned. They are part of... in in in. The, Newspapers such as the Times Picayune, you know, they have so often uh, been closely aligned with the establishment. So when I am a black editorial writer and you don't see who it is who's writing this, you are going to make the assumption that that person writing is a white person. And it conveys this, the, the editorial in general has this sense of authority. And privilege. Like, like, yeah, and mm -hmm. like, I can say these things, right. I can exactly. say that this is the right thing to do, that this is how it should be done. And when I was writing those editorials, it was like, okay, whatever I say here, people are going to assume that this is a white man speaking. And so how is that going to change how it is that I actually say something? Prime example, Ricky Williams, who's long ago running back for the New Orleans Saints, um, when Jim Haslett came into the, being the coach of New Orleans Saints, Ricky Williams said something like, he didn't even ask me about my hurt elbow. And so people all across New Orleans was just like going in on Ricky and how childish and how immature he was. You could go into the barbershops and people were dreading Ricky Williams, right? Like, what a baby he is. You know, how does he like, you know, not asking about it? So we used to do kind of these like light and kind of comical editorials in the Times Picayune. And so I was going to just write something addressing that. But I couldn't write even what people in the black barbershops were saying about Ricky Williams, because that would have come across as white people putting mm -hmm. down a black person in public, right? right? And so people would have seen it as, you know, look at what the white people are saying about Ricky mm -hmm. Williams, right. even though exactly. the white person wasn't even writing it in that situation. So I had to think about, you know, I had to navigate this really tricky ground of, writing as a black man who people are going to assume is white when they are reading it. And that does all sorts of right. things. Exactly. To, to, so it's like, we talked about the double consciousness of Du Bois. It's almost like this triple consciousness now where, you know, I'm, I'm a black man, I'm in America, I'm part of the media, and when people are reading me and my name isn't on it, on it, they're going to make certain assumptions mm -hmm. about who it is writing. 
So then I go from mostly writing editorials to writing columns. And now my name and my face <laughs> on everything are attached to everything, right? And even if it is an opinion that is similar in kind to the unsigned editorial, the fact that my name and my face are on mm-hmm. it now changes everything, right? Everything. So now, oh, it's a black man saying it. So now, <laughs> so now, how dare you? You know, how dare you? So that privilege now. Now you see this from a marginalization and or, or oppressed yeah. perspective. Yeah, and what what I have discovered in 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 many ways and on multiple occasions is the offense that people take that I would tell them anything or make any type of expressing opinion. You know, it isn't always my opinion that they're angry about, it's my existence. You know, it's this how how are you in this position to tell us about anything? Or how are you in this position to to say that we are wrong or this was wrong or that type of thing? So it is a very unique, I think, position to be in. Uh, it is, I'm always trying to juggle, you know, um, not not juggle, but at least acknowledge and navigate what people's expectations mm-hmm. and beliefs of me are. Because you've got to juggle. I mean, you work for the Times Picayune. Yeah. You've got to juggle, you know, both your presentation to both the black community and the community at large. Yeah. And, and, and the question often is, to whom am I writing? Um, and, and that isn't just, that, that's more than just naming the, the target audience, but, but how do you present it to them? Years and years ago, I think it was around 2000 or 2001, uh, Trent Lott, who was the Senate Majority Leader from Mississippi, made this really ridiculous remark to Strom Thurmond about how the country would have been better off if he had won as president. I remember, I remember exactly. Dixiecrat candidate. And so then Trent Lott went on his Black People's Apology Tour. Like he went on <laughs> BET, I think maybe, maybe even Tom Joyner and some others, you know, basically trying to convince Black people of what a great friend he was of Black people. So I said in a column, Something to the fact that Trent Lott, Emperor Lott, excuse me, is trying to convince people that he really does have his boo-boo on, right? <laughs> and I remember the editor saying, do you want to explain what boo-boo means? And I said, no. no. Wow. No. <laughs> because if it were a reference that I didn't get, I would be expected to look it up exactly. right? and to find out what boo-boo means. So I'm just going to exactly. do the exact same thing. If you don't know what FUBU is, there are a lot of people who do. <laughs> and in this particular instance, I am valuing the people who know what FUBU means right. exactly. more than those who don't. And if those who don't want to come along, then they can come along and find out for themselves. Gotcha, gotcha. So doing this work, it's tough. I mean, we just talked about all of the things that you have to think through yeah. as you're writing. You know, How do you stay healthy? Physically? <laughs> 
Psychologically. I don't, I don't know about you. Just came back. <laughs> you just came back from Jamaica. You know, yeah, shout out to uh, IOS and uh, yeah, Dr. Denise yeah. Shelton for that, what they're doing. That is a good question. Um, I don't think I take enough time to to focus on being healthy. Now, that's that's my honest answer. I don't do that enough. But to the extent that I do focus on it what I really attempt to do is let the things that need to roll off my back roll off my back uh, and to understand that people don't know me the way that they think that mm -hmm. they know me and, and, and to never get so invested in this that I think that other people's opinions of me are, are that significant. Years ago my aunt who lives in Jackson, Mississippi, told a story about when she was the director of the YWCA in Jackson. She fired somebody who worked at a pool who almost let somebody drown. And one of the black newspapers there put, the, the publisher of a black newspaper put her on what he called his sellout list. <laughs> and apparently what he would do is basically put somebody on this list and their cost of getting off the list was buying an ad at this oh, newspaper, really? right? And so she refused to do that. So he sees her in public and says, did you see your name on my list? And said, yeah. Well, why didn't you say anything? And she said, because it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like very clear that, okay, I'm not going to be bothered by your lies. You know, uh, just because you have this opinion of me does not mean that I have to respond to it. Right. It does not give it any credibility just because you said it. And so I have to remember really uh, who the people are who really care about me and who actually know me and that their opinions always matter more than those people who right. have a non Oh, you a racist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I understand. Like, Jarvis Guerra is a racist. I don't, I don't understand. People need to understand what the definition of racism you know, I have, I have family members who've been in jail for protesting for civil rights and the, and the right to vote. And so what I often do is remind myself that being mocked online doesn't even begin to compare to the things mm -hmm. that the people who are not, I wouldn't even call them ancestors, who are like in my actual family right now have gone through. Right. And when I weigh those things against what people are saying about me, you know, I just rolls off your back. I yeah. imagine, you, brother. Yeah. Jarvis, we appreciate it, brother. You know, I appreciate you having me. No, I am honored to have the Jarvis DeBerry on the What's Your Own Mission The Jarvis DeBerry. The Jarvis DeBerry. Good member of the Lady South Five Fraternity. Indeed. He incorporated Indeed. our Revolutionary of the Year. I just, I'm honored. Uh, and I thank you for all the great work that you're doing here in New Orleans but also uh, around the national conversation about race uh, and where we need to go as a people well, together. You, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. All right. We'll see you next week, everybody. Make sure you answer the most provocative question of your life. What's your revolution?